Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Zibby Owens about her new book, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature. Welcome to the show, Zibby. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about this book. But before we dive into it, will you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I live in New York City where I was born and raised. I have four kids and I am the author of Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, and also of the children's book, Princess Charming. My real day job, so to speak, is being the host of the podcast I created called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, which is a daily 365 day a week, a day a year uh, literary podcast in which I interview authors about their work for about 30 minutes. And from there, I started a whole range of other things, including Moms Don't Have Time to Write for personal essays and a publishing company called Zibby Books. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's hard to cover an entire book in, in an hour. Um, so would you please give us your elevator pitch for the book? Sure. Bookends is the backstory of how I found my voice after a series of losses from the trauma of losing my best friend and college roommate on 9-11 when I was just 25 and becoming a stay-at-home mom to my divorce a decade later. It's a deeply personal journey about the author's books and experiences that basically inspired me to become a book messenger and how I rewrote my own story along the way. Our listeners are very interested in higher ed and journeys through higher ed, and you cover part of that in your book. Um, Can you take us back to when you were heading off to college? Can you take us back to young Zibby and when she was heading off to Yale? Sure. Um, I was very excited to get in. Um, I remember jumping up and down and loving the Perspective Student Weekend. Um, The first day I got to campus as I pulled up in, I think, my family's old Volvo loaded to the gills, my mom walked onto the campus quad called Old Campus first and just to make sure we were in the right place. And she ran back to the car and she goes, oh, I just met the most adorable girl. I know you guys are going to be friends. And I was so irritated. I was like, mom, like, let me make my own friends. Why are you talking to random students on campus? Uh, but it turned out that was my friend Stacy. She became my best friend. We lived across the hall from each other. We roomed together the rest of the three years. Um, and she ended up changing my life. Uh, I thought I was going to be an English major. I had been a lover of words and books and writing my whole life and had published an article in Seventeen Magazine when I was just 14. Well, I was 16 by the time it came out, but I was 14 when it was published. And I I just thought that's what I would do. But when I got to school and sat in my first day of the required English class, I was like, I don't want to read any of these books. (laughs) Uh, But every, every single course in the psychology department, I couldn't wait to take. So I ended up being a psychology major instead and just taking the select classes that I wanted from the English department. And I continued to write at Yale. I wrote a bit for the Yale Herald newspaper. And I also wrote every year for the Insider's Guide to the Colleges, which uh, is an entirely student-written college guidebook written by Yale students and published by St. Martin's Press. So I worked my way up from a writer freshman year, and then I gradually became an editor until my senior year, I was co-editor-in-chief. So those were my main things aside from spending a lot of time with my friends and working very, very hard uh, to sort of prove myself and that I deserved my slot. You also give us um, glimpses into your interior world in bookends. Um, You struggled with a lot of shyness and anxiety. So while you were excited to be at school and you have a clear passion for learning and for reading and for the intellectual life. It comes through throughout the book. You also had trouble talking in class and you you grappled with what it was like to be shy. Uh, Can you talk about sort of the the dueling things going on inside you there? Sure. Yes. Um, I had been shy forever. Uh, Once I was comfortable around friends or new friends, 
or anything, I could open up and be as talkative as I am right now. But it took a while for me to gain that comfort level with people when I was younger, in particular at, at business school. So Stacy, who I mentioned meeting the first day at Yale, I did go on to Harvard Business School and Two weeks after I got there, she uh, she had been working in in the towers in the World Trade Center and was killed. And the combination of the grief and shock and trauma and shyness and everything made it so that it was almost impossible for me to speak in class. And the way it worked in my section and all the classes for the first year is that you are in an assigned seat the first semester and then a different seat the second semester. And my assigned seat was literally in the front row in the center, right in front of the teacher. It was terrible. And you could be cold called at any point. That's their teaching method. So you read this case, like a case study about a company, and then answer all the questions and prepare and then go into class. But at any moment, you can be cold called uh, even when you don't have nothing to say. So I would sit there for the 80-minute classes just terrified I was about to be called on. And trying to, I had lots of thoughts, of course, but the conversations all moved pretty quickly. And sometimes I would raise my hand and the conversation would surge past and then it would take a while. And there were all these restrictions, like you had to move the conversation forward and you couldn't echo what somebody else said. You had to, so I could barely talk. I, I just, I could barely talk. And it took, it took until almost the end of second semester. In fact, this one teacher I did finally talk in this one finance class. It might have been my only comment the whole semester. And he was so nice and emailed me after class and was like, so happy that you spoke up. Please do it again. Congratulations. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> you described those seats as the worm deck. Yes. Where did that term, the worm deck, come from? I don't even know. The worm deck was the front row and the sky deck was the top row, which is like where all the cool kids were hanging out, even though it was randomly assigned. And actually every Friday there were sky deck awards because the people in the sky deck could see all the funny things that happened with everybody else in class all week. Uh, second semester I actually was in the sky deck, which was so exciting and uh, – Oh, just enabled me to relax a lot more without feeling like I was constantly in the front lines. So you mentioned a minute ago about going to Harvard uh, for business school. Um, how did you go from uh, an undergraduate degree in psychology to thinking, grad school, I'll study business? Originally, I wanted to be a psychologist and go to psych grad school. So I took the GREs and got information about all those programs I also interned at a psychiatric hospital in the adolescent inpatient unit one summer, and I decided that actually I didn't want to do that right away. I also was, I mean, the sense of silly in retrospect, but I was dating someone at the time who was moving to LA for his job, and I wanted to move with him, but I didn't want to stay in LA that long. So he suggested that I start this program if I really still wanted to do it after we left because he wanted to go to business school and would undoubtedly leave LA to do so. So I put that on the back burner and was happy to do so also because I wasn't 100% sure that was necessarily the right thing. I wanted to include a lot of psychology, but I wasn't sure I could sit all day and just have – I just wasn't sure that – I didn't want to work in a hospital. I realized that after that summer, and I wasn't sure I wanted to be in private practice either. So I went in, I took another summer and did advertising in the brand planning and strategy department, which I found fascinating, the relationship between people and brands, which is another form of psychology, really, was understanding those relationships. And after I graduated, I did find a position at a very small brand development firm and design firm in LA, which is literally like in a converted motor in in Studio City. But anyway, it was great. I had a lot of responsibility as a freshly out of college person with my own office. And it was exciting. And this is right before internet. I mean, it was as internet companies were just taking off and going gangbusters. And a few of our clients were internet companies. And after I'd worked there for a little less than a year, I thought it would be really fun to actually be working at an internet company. And so I joined a company called Ideal Lab, which was an internet incubator in Pasadena which I loved because I really love starting things up. Um, I love the startup mentality, the branding, 
creating an experience, figuring out who the users are, that whole thing I found fascinating. And I was a marketing resource to all the companies and help with knowledge sharing and community and all of that. And then from there, I moved back to New York post breakup and worked for Unilever in consumer products management, helping launch the Vera Wang fragrance. And nobody could get promoted without an MBA at that point. Plus, I had this other idea of starting a business to help people get situated in New York because so many young people were moving into New York to work at all the banks and consulting firms and all that. Plus, I thought if I were the person to set somebody, all these guys' apartments up, maybe I would meet somebody. Uh, And I talked to my dad about it. And he said, you know, if you're going to start a business, you should really know what you're doing. And you should really go to business school. And I was like, well... I have to go to business school if I want to stay in my current job. I have to go to business school if I want to start up a new company. I love school. I'm not going to get the PhD at this point because I've sort of zoomed past that option. So how about I get an MBA? And that's how it happened. And you tell us at this point in the book, you're kind of hungry to go back to school. Um, Yeah. You've been living with two of your friends, one of whom is Stacy, and you have to pack up and leave New York and go to Boston, and you're there a very short time, and 9-11 happens. You write about it really vividly and heartbreakingly in the book. Can you take us to that moment? Yes. So actually, she had. we were trying to go to business school together. We had been living together in New York that year before I left, and went and took our GMATs, the standardized test at the same testing center at the same time. And then as we were doing our applications, she got a new job working at the World Trade Center for a company called Marsha McClellan. And she thought that she would do better because she had a little gap in her resume from when she had been laid off from a company called Organic, that it would make her a stronger candidate if she would work a little bit longer. So we ended up not going to school at the same time, which I was really upset about, but I understood. And so I went and it was literally just two weeks in. And as you, as I already discussed, I was very nervous and shy and particularly in the beginning, um, there were so many events at school, so many classes, so many things I had to prepare. I didn't get a chance to talk to her as much as I would have normally the first two weeks of school. And I did have one really long conversation with her, which I remember like it was yesterday. And then the morning of 9-11, I was in class I was walking into class and and or out of class, or, and there were these computer ki- kiosks right outside of the classrooms. And as I walked past this one guy, and I can still see this so clearly in my head, he said to another guy he was talking to, he's like, "Dude, you know, a plane just hit the World Trade Center." And I was thinking in my head, "Oh, it must be such a tiny plane. Like that's crazy. Um, must have clipped it or something." And and so I kind of looked at the screen and it didn't seem like that big a deal. And I didn't, I couldn't even tell what I was seeing. And I was like, okay, whatever, I don't want to be late. So went to class. And then by the time I got out of class, you know, the world had just completely upended. And I followed the swarm of students to the student center across the way. And we stood there and watched with our jaws dropped and people crying and trying desperately to reach people. And I was trying really hard to reach Stacy and called her repeatedly and um, then ran to my on-campus apartment where another group of people were already there watching with my roommate and just waited and called her parents and call, tried to call friends, but you know the phone lines were down in a lot of places and just kept thinking like, where is she? When is she going to show up? When is she going to show up? And I just like never got off that couch. I just waited and waited and as I went to bed at night, I was scanning all the photos online. Was she anywhere? Could I find her? And um, yeah, she never turned up ever. It was terrible. The next morning I drove back to New York, uh, stopping on the way to see her parents. And um, it was awful. It was really awful. And you try to stay in school and you try to be in New York. And You're at school, and one of your professors says, if anybody doesn't want to be here, it's okay, and you're the only one who gets up and walks out, but when you're in New York, your family and friends are trying to encourage you to go ahead and be at school, and you're kind of fitting in nowhere, nothing makes sense to you anymore. Yes, that's true. (laughs) I couldn't find 
there was no place in the world to be because I felt like my world was over. I, I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, she was like my sister. I mean, she had a lot of really good friends. Like she probably had eight to 10, like really close friends. Had she gotten married, she would have had a lot of bridesmaids. You know what I mean? But, um, but for me, and I have a lot of friends too, but there was just something special. We were so close. Um, and because we had been roommates so much, people identified one of us with the other, you know, like, are the two of them coming? And, um, but I just, there was no happy place. There was no place I wanted to be. I mean, I would have preferred to be in New York near all my other friends who knew her and loved her. Um, but it turned out, I guess, being a blessing that I had this other community to take refuge in when New York itself was just, I mean, you know, chaos and everybody was just on edge and grieving and all the rest. And I did go on the weekends, but I could distract myself with the intense workload. And, you know, I'm someone who never misses a deadline or an assignment or, you know, due date, anything. Um, but this time I was just like, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this work. I, I don't know if I can get dressed. I don't know if I can open my computer. Um, I was in a very in a state of real shock. Um, and I even tried to drop out of school after I failed this test, which again, I never fail things. I mean, um, and I failed. You, this- you tell us in the book, you say the last time you failed something was seventh grade and you give us all the reasons. Like I had the chicken pox <laughs> and then I got the flu and no one told me to read about the Trojan horse and they made me take the test anyway. It was like stamped in your mind. The last time I failed something, I was in seventh grade. And then <laughs> Yeah, you tell us you're in grad school, and you even write this sentence twice. You say that you you failed um, this test, and then the next sentence is just one word, failed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was not happy about that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, So take us back to when you're going to the administrator. Like, I failed a test. I have to leave school. Yeah, I just – I was like, I I obviously can't do this. Like, I don't want to be here. I don't have my whole support network. Um, I was dating someone new at that point, but he also lived in New York. Um, I had a couple close friends. My friend Rachel was amazing and really got me through a lot, um, as did Stacy and I had a mutual friend, Steve, who went to business school with me. So at least he knew her and knew what I was going through and was going through the same feelings. Um, But... uh, yeah. I mean, I I just felt like I didn't want to be there anyway. And then when I failed, it was just a sign from the heavens or whatever that I just was not supposed to be there. So I told my dad, I had this funny phone call with him, which I talk about in the book when I had failed. And, you know, he was like, don't drop out of school. That'll be a huge mistake. And I, and I always listen to my dad, by the way, he is almost always right. Uh, and I just couldn't. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I walked across campus and I walked up these carpeted stairs up to the dean's office or the minister. I don't even know what office it was. And I was like, you know, I'm here to drop out. I have to drop out of school. And this really nice man met me and was like, hold on, like, let's just talk about this. And um, his name was Steve Nelson. And if it weren't for him, if if the person there had been a different person or had approached it a different way, I might have dropped out. But he convinced me to stay and to get an accounting tutor. And he was a, a guy in my section. He was very nice, a man named Craig, and just was so supportive of me the rest of the time checking in. And, and just that was really enough to make me feel like I could do it. So I stayed. You had another lifeline, though. You had your writing. You tell us that you're writing for the school newspaper, The Harvest. You wrote column after column. Um, and some of the students came up to you and said that writing about loss and about 9-11 was really brave. And you said, I didn't feel brave. I felt gutted. Yes, that's true. I did turn to writing as I always do and always have, um, to process really anything. And I wrote about it. I had actually started writing for the school paper right when I got to school. So I think I had written one or two articles already and I already had like my editor at the paper and I was all set up to keep writing, so I yeah, I wrote I wrote a piece called Moving On. It was a week or two after 9-11 and I talked about what it was like in New York City. I talked about losing Stacy. I talked about 
the juxtaposition of being in school and everybody else's complete immersion and wanting to get the most of the program and negotiating deals, section fleeces and all this stuff with the things that I was going through, like packing up Stacy's apartment and, you know, helping her family through this. So it, it was, it was a really crazy time and writing really helped it. Um, you know, I think at that stage in our lives, I was 25 and I was on the younger side of the class. A lot of people were there to network, to meet other people who would be helpful. You know, that's part of what business school purports to deliver, right? Is that network of people who will be helpful to you forever. Um, and I think people were, some people were concerned about their image and what they would be projecting. And here I was just being like, oh my gosh, like I was eating ice cream on the floor of a bathroom and couldn't get up or, you know, I'm, I'm really open about stuff like that. And I think that was just so anathema to some of the students. Um, you know, we all took this personality test when we got to school and I, I was like, there were 2% of all students who had ever scored the way I did. You know what I mean? I was like a, a different emotional beast from the rest. And, there were a number of students who came up to me after I wrote my first article and then all the subsequent articles who thanked me and or shared that they had known someone tangentially or that they had lost somebody else in their lives or who helped out. And uh, and then others who were just like, I can't believe you wrote that. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I did. you know. And now it's actually so nice because on LinkedIn, um, I've been getting all these messages from people from business school saying, oh my gosh, I've been reading your writing since you started writing about this in school. I'm so happy your book is finally coming out. <laughs> and like, uh, it's just really nice people who are really rooting for me. So it's, it's a really wonderful feeling. You're also reading a lot there. The school is designed so that you get assigned, um, these cases and you, you do this coursework where you read and about three cases every, every day. And that for you was not a heavy reading load. You described getting that done while you're working out in that, um, in the gym, you could read while you're on the treadmill or whatever. So you were continuing your love of reading books for escape and reading books that you chose, but you're also reading books about grief and you're giving books about grief to loved ones who think that your grief has been going on for too long or that it was time for you to get over it. Can you talk about that kind of misconception that grief is something that we, we get over? Yeah. I mean, grief just, you can't get over it. It becomes a part of you. It changes everything inside. It like rearranges the particles or something. It's a, it's a reset. Um, it's not a hurdle. It, it's an absorption. So it it affected everything. And yes, I continued to read. I had a book club with some really great women, which is another real boon to have on campus. And I continued to read and lose myself in other worlds, which has always really helped me because sometimes day-to-day -day life is, is very stressful or unpleasant or I'm depressed or, you know, even recently in the pandemic, it's like I just have to get out. <laughs> and I, but yet I don't. So I open books and, and then they're like my little window out as hokey as that sound. I get the idea from the book that you are never without a book. You're the type of person who always has a book in your purse or your tote bag, just in case you have your book in your emergency backup book in case your book is done. You're one of those kind of people. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. I always have a book. I always have multiple books going usually. And you, you show us in uh, bookings that you like to give people books. You like to recommend books to people and you like to put books in people's hands. How far back does that go? Was that you were always the one who gave books as gifts or? Yeah, I, I have always been giving books as gifts. Um, I, I can't even think of a moment when it, when it started exactly. Um, but I, I, it's just something I've always done. I mean, I grew up going to the library all the time and spending afternoons in bookstores with my mom. And um, yeah, I've always shared articles and books. And, you know, I get really excited about things. And then I want the people around me to, to also feel that way. Um, I mean, I don't remember doing it as much as like a child. But certainly as I got older and started reading more books, um, I was always recommending them 
people would ask me when they were going on vacation what they should bring. And I was always talking to my grandmother about the books we were reading. So, yeah. Did others at grad school understand how you were finding time or making time to keep reading for pleasure? It sounds like they were meeting uh, every morning and talking over the case studies, and they were uh, making lots of time to, to really gut the, the case studies, and you were zipping through the reading of them and making time for some pleasure reading as well. Were they able to understand why you needed to read other books as well? It feels like a deep need in you. It's not something you could have sacrificed to make time for something else. Yeah, it's just a habit. I mean, I do it all. I do it every night. I, it's not. It's not an option. It's just like a part of what I do and a part of how I live. Um, I don't know that I spoke to other students about the fact that I was reading on my own. Like, I'm not sure I found it remarkable enough to discuss at the time. Um, maybe, but I don't think I did. I'm not sure. That's an interesting question. Um, yeah. I mean, I took a lot less time to socialize at the beginning. I, you know, I just had slightly different priorities. I wasn't staying on campus even on the weekends. And um, so I don't know. I was just sort of like off doing my own thing a little bit. So did you organize the book club or was that something that Harvard had and you joined? No, it wasn't from the school. In fact, it was it was my friend Rachel, who I mentioned earlier, and then it was the wives of a few of the of the guys who were in my section, um, and maybe one or two other people. No, I think it was all my from my section. I don't even remember how it started, um, but I'm delighted that it did. <laughs> and the other thing that helped you through that really difficult time was you started seeing a trauma therapist. Yes, I did. She was great. And you talk about that really openly in the book about how important she was and how as soon as you finished an appointment, you started counting down the moments until you could see her again. Can you talk a bit about the help of the importance of asking for help and getting that emotional support, especially when there's been such a huge loss? Yeah, um, that was amazing. Um, in fact, I'm it, it, I'm almost positive it was that same man, Steve Nelson, who recommended my therapist to me that day when I was going to drop out of school. Um, she was wonderful. I have, I am a huge fan of therapy. I have been sort of in and out of therapy since I was 14 years old. Um, and, you know, I told you before I'm a, I was a psychology major. I'm just a huge fan of, of everything therapy has to offer and everything this psychology field has to offer. Um, I, I, you know, I was a little embarrassed about it at the time. I mean, I drove to these appointments and I would like sneak off to the, to the garage on campus and, and drive over the river into this quaint residential neighborhood. And I wasn't like, bye guys, I'm going to therapy. I mean, I'm 45 years old now. I'm, I'm comfortable with, with myself and my decisions and things like that. But back then I was a little embarrassed. Um, I don't know why I could have easily said I'm seeing a trauma therapist. You all know that my best friend was, you know, exploded in the building or whatever. But, um, you know, I just didn't – it's not something I advertise. Let's put it that way. You, With the supports that you put together, you were able to stay at um, grad school and complete the MBA and graduate. And when you graduate, you go back to New York and you're determined to write a book that's really about losing Stacy. Yes. So I went back. I decided to take a year off. I decided that if I was going to be killed at my desk working, that I had to be doing something that brought my whole self to my desk. And it couldn't just be marketing Pepperidge Farm cookies, which is what I had been doing before, um, or for my summer internship even. So I decided to take a year off. And I wrote an outline for the book. I wrote the book. I wrote. I would cross off chapters every day, print them out, put them on my floor. I worked with a, a fellow business school student who became a mentor to me and is still a mentor to me. I just sat next to her at lunch the other day. And her name is Lee Carpenter, who had who's written several books, including 11 Days and Red, White, Blue and, and other um, projects. And... Um, 
yeah, I just started doing it. I went back in time. I, I, I first started by going through all my emails and just collaborate, you know, basically co- cobbling them together in one big document to try to find the, the through lines and everything. And then wrote it again as a memoir. And then I decided to write it as a novel because I wasn't sure I was comfortable sharing all the information about all the different people. So I wrote it as a novel. And that's the one I ultimately decided to try to sell, which in retrospect, I'm not sure was the right thing to do. Although, I don't know, life's worked out pretty well for me right the second. So maybe it was meant to be, but it it brought many, many years of being extremely disappointed and sad because the book didn't sell. And I was really mortified when that happened. I mean, I thought that if I could write a book that I just thought if I, I just knew I had a story to tell, I knew it would help other people. And ultimately the book probably wasn't that good. I, I haven't even read it again. I am like afraid to, but uh, I did spend the time and then, uh, and then was just, yeah, very, very disappointed, especially because when I left school, I told everybody like, I'm leaving to write a book and everyone's like, great. And so then everybody for years would be like, how's that book? I'm like, uh, <laughs> got rejected. It's okay. Trying again. So I have to be honest, next year um, in 2023 is my is my 20-year reunion. And finally, I will have gotten this book out <laughs> in time for that. So I'm, I'm excited to, to show my face again after 20 years. It's hard when you graduate and you have start piling up the degrees. We have this idea that we'll just go right into the next chapter of our life pretty seamlessly. And you tell us that after the book has been sent out and I think it went to six places and they all they all passed and your agent came back and said, Zibby, there's just not anywhere else I can send this. So you're working at Weight Watchers and you describe yourself on page 121. You say, I was a receptionist with a failed book, two degrees, and probably an eating disorder. I was a professional disaster and everyone I loved kept dying. So while you're trying to write about Stacy, you experience several more losses. I did. Um, well, actually, all the losses were within from September of my first year of business school to September of my second year of business school. And so it started with Stacy. It included two grandfathers, my stepbrother, and then a close friend of mine from high school who um, died by suicide. So. It was not an easy time. Let me just put it that way. It was like I couldn't believe it. One thing after another. And not it's not like I was always the closest person. I mean, I, it's not that I, you know, it's not like my stepbrother and I were talking on the phone all the time or anything, but it, it, it was a loss that affected my own family and my stepfather who lives with my mom. Um, and it was just another, you know, more funerals and loss and sadness and just supporting people and, um, just more reminders. And he was young, just how quickly it all could end. Like any minute could happen to anyone. So it's it's really changed the way I live. And for that, I am grateful, but I still would prefer not to have learned these lessons this way. But I do feel there is a shorthand between people who have gone through loss at an early age or loss that's hit them hard, or they just sort of get it in a way that you can't even so I I'm trying to explain it so that everyone can understand it that's part of the book is you know here's why my life changed here's here's why I could never live the same way again because how crazy was this experience and how crazy is life in general and you're back in New York which has permanently changed as well now you mean? Yes. Uh, it was changed then and it continues to change now. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't mind getting out of here <laughs> for a little while and maybe spending a little more time in LA, which I still really love. Um, but yes, I'm here. I mean, it's my whole life. Like I have, uh, I sound like my mom. She says the same thing. She basically doesn't live here anymore, but still considers it her home. And, um, I think I'll always consider it my home. It's the kind of place in my neighborhood where I, I know somebody every time I leave my house, I run into someone I know, and that's a really nice feeling. So, and there's just obviously so many opportunities and experiences and events and, and things to do in New York. Uh, so, and you know, my kids all love it and 
go to school here. So it would be hard to pick up and move at this point. But yes, here I am. You do tell us in the book about how these losses and the fact that New York is, I mean, the skyline has permanently changed from the loss of the World Trade Center. And people there all uh, know someone or know someone who knows someone who has experienced loss due to 9-11. And it permanently changes how you feel about time and how we use time and what we value and what we don't. At times, that becomes pressure on yourself, though. You show us um, that you sometimes get at a frenetic pace in how you do things. You got really worried about your young children. Um, So at times, that feeling that there's no time to waste, did it become pressure on you, Zibby? Um, yeah, I mean, I always have this sort of ticking clock in my head, this, this, uh, this hourglass with the sands running out, like that is how I approach life every day. So I don't put death sort of on the back burner. I mean, I try not to think about it too, uh, too closely or else I have panic attacks, but I, I'm aware, I'm aware that every day is a gift. I am aware that at any moment it could be taken away. I plan some things with that in mind. And that's just part of, of who I am. But it's not such an unrealistic thing. I mean, it is the truth. So I, I think it helps. Not not pressure in terms of – not a bad pressure. Just, all right, like keep going. Got to do this. Keep going. Let's try it. To, you want to start it tomorrow? I can start it today. <laughs> And you love getting things started. You show us that in the book, that that, that aspect of your MBA um, and that sort of part of your own DNA um, is what really excites you. When someone tells you about a new venture or they want to bounce some ideas off you, I can kind of feel you lighting up on those pages. Um, can you tell us about that, your love of starting new things for people and helping get things off the ground? Yeah. I don't know what it is, but it, I've been very drawn to doing this. I love the startup phase. I love figuring out what can be done differently and how it can be done better. And then branding, putting a brand around that. And I, I don't know what appeals to me about it. Um, I will say I come from a, a family of entrepreneurs, so maybe it's genetic or by example, but I do. I really love creating things and helping create things and helping people live their best lives however I can. And um, yeah, I have, I have a lot more ideas on how I can, on what I can do next and, and other, other things I'd like to start. And so after applying that to, uh, a lot of other people's projects, you start applying that to yours. You have a, a podcast network, you have a publishing company. Um, it's easy to look at where you are now as sort of overnight success, but it was about 20 years to get overnight success. Is that right? Well, I did take 11 years off uh, to stay home with my kids. So I, you know, I, I don't know if I can say 20, but yes, all the, everything came, it, it, it was not an overnight success, especially for the book. The book, um, yeah, I've been in and out of this book in many iterations in one way, shape, or form. But really the answer I think is I was ready to write the book, but the book wasn't quite ready to be written. I I needed to live more. I needed to include more. And I kept thinking I had reached the end of the book. And now, in fact, that's sort of why I wanted to call it book ends. You know, book ends, like I I have to stop at some point. I'm not saying life is is done now, but I, I feel like now at least I've reached a point at which this all makes sense and can be neatly organized and described. And yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens next. There was a another book that you were trying to write called 40 Love. And I feel like Bookends is kind of the original book about loss and Stacy and 9-11 and quite a lot of what inspired 40 Love, that Bookends is really the 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 story that came out of all that time of working through your craft of writing and figuring out what story you were going to tell and how. 
Yes. And actually the podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, has been the most helpful thing. And, you know, it's funny. I was with some author friends last night and they said, well, now that your book is coming out, are you still going to keep doing all the other stuff? I mean, isn't this what you wanted all along? And I was like, it is what I wanted, but what I've gotten is so much better than just writing a book. What I've gotten is so much bigger and better and I love it. I love my podcast and I learned so much about writing from the books I read for the podcast. You probably feel the same way, but you know, I've I've I'm able now to analyze books a lot. Like what is working, what is not, what do the great books have in common, things like that. So my reading has definitely improved my writing even over the last couple of years. I I'm a better writer this year than I was last year at this time and it's great because, you know, circling back to this whole education piece, you know, I, I, I love school. I love learning. And so I've basically created my own little school. <laughs> I have assignments. I have deadlines. I have deliverables. Um, so it's taken a while to figure out how to do that again and, and live with that same kind of pressure because that's what, that's when I work best is like knowing something is, is coming up or due or whatever. And, getting to spend my days in books. I mean, it's it's really a dream come true. And by surrounding yourself with other writers and having those conversations, you've got your cohort and your study group. Yes, that's true. That's true. Can you tell us about your publishing company? So I didn't set out to start a publishing company. That has never been a long-term dream of mine or anything like that. But after talking to over a thousand authors and also being on the publishing side of things, I had these two anthologies come out during the pandemic, Moms Don't Have Time To and Moms Don't Have Time To Have Kids, with essays by authors who had been on my podcast. I got a chance to see behind the curtain of what it's like to have a book come out and also had the experience of all these authors talking to me about it and bookstore events that I would do with authors and social events with authors. And it just seemed like fundamentally things in the publishing industry needed to shift to keep up with the times and the big publishers in their consolidation weren't able to pivot as quickly or meet the needs perhaps of the changing consumer. And there were all these things that I was thinking I could do differently. And I kept hoping like, who's going to do this? How are we going to get everything to change? And and ultimately I realized that maybe I was the person who was going to try to get things to change. I know it's like ridiculous when I say it out loud that I thought like me, one person could actually make these changes. But, you know, if every person thought that, nothing would ever get changed. So I thought, well, maybe it is me. I should give it a try. So I'm doing it. And it's hard work. It is hard. Um, but it can be really rewarding. And we have our line of books starting to come out in January of 2023, which is scary soon. And um, I have a great team. We have some really great books. And we're doing things differently. Um, I've sort of taken apart every piece of the publishing process and and changed it up to put the author at the center of everything. So we have established authors who have been published by other houses who want to come to us and then debut authors who are excited. And we have a nice range. We've acquired 18 books already. So that's it. Zibbybooks.com. You also share your love of reading with others through a number of ways, through boards that you're on and presentations that you do and programs that you appear on. Talking about books lights you up. Reading books makes you excited and you want to help other people get excited about books. We have a lot of listeners right now who are overwhelmed with the amount of signed reading that they have to do. How can people get pleasure reading back in their lives and why is it important that they do? Well, pleasure reading, uh, maybe it's a rebrand of that. Like pleasure reading makes it sound like, oh, you should just relax and do this. Like I don't see reading as something passive, right? Like a lot of times when I'm reading, I have a pen in my hand and I'm I'm actively thinking and engaging with the work. Um, I think it's you know, there are all these studies on why reading is so important. Like it increases empathy and it keeps your brain young and, and all these other things. For me, I just think without an outlet, how can you come back and be your, like, and be your most optimal self? I mean, reading is a reset. 
it is a timeout and a trip all in one. And then, except it's so easy, you just open a, the spine of the book. You don't even need to read for that long. But, you know, take reading like this really funny story uh, where you're going to laugh out loud. Like, how nice would it be to just dive into that in the midst of all the studying or something really emotional, like a movie that makes you want to cry or, uh, you know, reading a few pages of well-written text is so much better than spending those same 10 minutes scrolling Instagram. Not to say you don't have to. I love Instagram. I'm on Instagram all the time. I'm at Zibby Owens, C-I-B-B-Y-O-W-E-N-S. Um, so I do love Instagram, but I can't use it at the expense of reading. Like they are two totally different things. They do different things from my mind and my brain and my mood. So yeah, I mean, reading, it's essential. It's fun. It's engaging. It's life enhancing. And it's so easy to access for everyone, even an audiobook. So I, I highly recommend it. You say in the book that um, the more you read, the better you get at it you personally, and the faster that you get at it. And it strikes me that that's what you've also said about writing. So if we, you know, make time for reading every day, perhaps at bedtime, we read 15 minutes of a book that uh, is not assigned to us, we chose it. Mm -hmm. Um, Will we get better and faster at reading if we stick with it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't anticipate getting to be a faster reader. It like never occurred to me. I've always been fast, but I didn't know I would be picking up the pace. But it's like running. The more you do it, the faster you'll get if you if you want. I mean, you could just stay the same pace. But I don't know. When I'm on the treadmill, the next time I get on, I'm like, could I go up a little bit? Maybe. I mean, granted, I haven't run a treadmill in like years, but this is what I used to do. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you'll get you'll get back into it, and it just takes one book. It just takes one book that's amazing or that finds you at the right time that you're like, oh my gosh, yes, this is why I do this. So I think the trick is finding the right book for you, which I try to help with by curating books and and having the best ones in all different genres on my podcast. And yeah, it's uh, the feeling when you can't go to bed because you're so into a story that you're reading. I mean, that is a great feeling, I think. I think there's also some science that if you if you read before bed, it'll help you sleep better than if you were using screen time before bed. Yes, that too. Yep. Do you have a favorite genre? I love memoir. I, that's, that's always been my favorite. I know that um, some of your original projects were about how moms don't have time to read. It strikes me that you could easily... Uh, say students don't have time to read. When you when you talk with people, do you give them tips on how to find time to read? On the podcast, no. The podcast is uh, – and you're right, it is. it could just as easily be for students. that They are not mom-focused, but I like to come at everything with a point of view. I am a mom of four kids, and th- th- I started it based on my point of view. There are lots of moms who also are really busy, but there are lots of – really busy people who are not moms who I also think would – who also do listen and who could listen. Um, I'm not trying to exclude anybody with the title, but that is just the point – my point of reference. Um, I don't usually give people the tips on my podcast, but I'm often asked to go on other shows or um, write pieces or other things about how to help people find more time themselves. Can you share some of those tips with us? Sure. Um, I think you should, I think the overarching tip is to read in those stolen moments of the day, which otherwise would either be wasted or spent on social media. So if you're, if you always, and also to have a book with you at all times, either an audiobook downloaded or an ebook or a Kindle or an actual book, I'm an actual book person the most, although I, I do all of it. Um, and then when you're waiting online at the post office or, at a restaurant or something that would irritate you or you'd become impatient. Like I, that is when I take out a book or I also, I mean, you can also make time in your day-to-day life, but sometimes the stolen moments, the the 30 minute drives, if you take enough of them and you have an audio book going all the time, you finish a book. It's pretty cool. Um, 
I like to read while I'm exercising. Like if I'm on an elliptical machine, I'll read a book or I'll listen to an audiobook, taking walks. Um, I drop my kids off. I walk across the park a lot so I can listen to a whole novel, right? And I also think you don't have to always finish the book. I don't finish every book I start, but I get the I get a lot out of whatever I read of any book. And just finding the right books for you, a book you really want to read, not that you feel you should read, always helps. Is that why book recommendations are so important? Yeah. I mean, there are so many books. There are so many books out. There's so many books coming out. There are books coming out every week. There are book deals getting inked now. There's no shortage of books. The, the problem is how to wade your way through them and find the ones that you're meant to read. And that can be hard. So I think book curation is important. Um, I think book podcasts like mine or other people's or articles that recommend the top five for this or that. I mean, I spend a lot of time going through books to recommend them for GMA every month and Katie Kirk Media, which I used to do weekly and now I'm, I'm doing a little less frequently. Um, and I think word of mouth. Who, who, who has read the books that you respect and whose book taste you, you share? What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I hope they will run out and buy my book. <laughs> I hope they will go listen to my podcast. Um, no, but I hope that I hope that readers will consider getting back into reading, even though they're really busy, and that sometimes it actually makes the other stuff more bearable if you have something else added in your life, aside from just taking things away when you're overwhelmed. And I hope it makes people feel like they don't have to have it all figured out at this early an age. I did not have it all figured out. I tried a lot of different careers. It didn't all make sense to me. I thought it was all just totally random until all of a sudden I realized it wasn't random and it all did fit into pieces of a puzzle that I just couldn't see yet. So each decision you make is this little puzzle piece. And just because it you can't see where it clicks in doesn't mean it's not the right piece. That would be my advice. If you had one piece of advice you could have given younger you, either back when you were first starting at Yale or when you were starting your MBA, what would it have been? Um, I'm tempted to say, you know, that the advice would be, it will all make sense later. Just keep pursuing what you're really interested in and, and let it all come together and show you what it all means over time. But another thing I would say at the outset of a school setting is to just pay close attention and, and really cherish the time with friends. Not everybody is going to be around forever. And it's important to spend the time with the people who you really care about in all, in all parts of your life. Thank you so much for being here today, Zibby Owens, and telling us about your new book, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.